It's better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. You're listening to an audio teaching from Cross Connection Church Houston. We're a small church located in Pasadena, Texas, and it is our mission to save the lost, equip the saved, serve both the lost and saved, and to send the equipped. To this end, we teach through the Bible on a verse-by-verse basis, starting at the beginning of a book and working until the end. If you would like to learn more about our church, you can find us at connectedtojesus.org or check us out on Facebook at Cross Connection Church Houston. We pray that this teaching would grow you in the grace and love of Jesus Christ our Lord. Today our message is cultivating the fruit of endurance in trials. Cultivating the fruit of endurance in trials. Uh, so the, uh, the passage we'll be covering is Hebrews chapter 12, verse 3 through 11. So with that, let's go ahead and go before the Father and um, ask that he would um, just send a spirit to illuminate God's word to us. And so, Father, we come before you. We thank you, Lord, for loving us. We thank you, Father, for the trials that we go through. They're, they're not always pleasant. They're not always fun. But, Lord, you have a plan and purpose for each one. So, Lord, as we were reminded last week we need to set our eyes upon you we need to keep looking at you we need to remember that you are the goal your son is the goal jesus you are and uh we not we should not keep our eyes we should not divert our eyes to the left or to the right or to the person running next to us or behind us or in front of us but just on you jesus and if we keep our eyes on you we can endure we can run with endurance this race that you have set before us so lord we come to you right now please uh, by the power of your Holy Spirit, help us, Lord. Every one of us is in different spots, Lord, and so we pray that you would just give a fresh word to each and every one of us. Where, whatever our situation is, wherever we are in life, Lord, would you speak to us? And um, as James says, we don't want to be hearers of your word only, but we want to be doers. So, Lord, whatever is hindering us, whatever obstacles, whatever weights or encumbrances, whatever sins, Lord God, we just want to lay those aside right now so that we can run this race. In Jesus' name, amen. And so here we are. We are looking at uh, this section. And as we talked last week, we talked about the importance of having our eyes on Jesus. He is the author. He is the finisher of our faith. He began our faith, and he will complete it. Um, Paul talks about this, that he began. He who began a work in us is faithful and just to complete it until the day of salvation. And so we have that assurance that as we journey through this life, we do not journey through this life uh, by ourselves, but we journey with the Lord. We journey with the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. We journey with the testimony of God's word, the foundation of God's word, the guidance of God's word. And most of all, we journey with the love of the Father. So the writer of Hebrews is now encouraging us. And really, chapter 12 is about encouragement. It's about setting our eyes on him. In this section, it's about encouraging us through trials. And then the next section we'll cover is about turning then and taking that comfort and taking that encouragement and encouraging others as they also run the race. So verse 3, we start here. It says, For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest you be wearied and faint in your minds. Verse 4 says, you have not yet resisted unto blood, striving against sin. So this first section that we're going to cover is that Jesus is our example in enduring trials. 
And so what we have to understand is that the inevitable, the truth, the bare, the bare fact of reality is that as a believer, as someone who has surrendered to the guidance and the uh, direction of the Holy Spirit, trials will come. We don't have a get out of trial free card. We don't have a, uh, a go past trials and collect $200 or anything like that. Trials will come. Now, trials may be different for us. I mean, you may have one trial, then I don't go through that. But that doesn't mean that I don't also have a trial that I'm going through. So God has a portion to each one of us, a specific trial or trials. And these trials are uniquely tailored to who we are and our personality and our bent. I want you to turn with me to Acts chapter 17. This wasn't really in the message, but just feel like the Lord right now is wanting me to share this with you. Acts chapter 17, there's two things I want you to take note of. Two things in Acts chapter 17, as you see this riot in Thessalonica, and then they move from Thessalonica to Berea. But first of all, in Acts chapter 17, Paul encounters some Athenians. He encounters some Greeks. And in verse 22, it says he stood in the middle of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that you are extremely religious in every respect. For as I was passing through and observing the objects of your worship, I even found an altar on which was inscribed to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made this world and everything in it, he is Lord of heaven and earth, and he does not live in shrines made by hands. Neither is he served by human hands, though he needed as though he needed anything, since he himself gives everyone life, breath, and all things. From one man he has made every nationality to live over the whole earth, and has determined their appointed times and the boundaries where they live. He did this so that they might seek God, and perhaps they might reach out and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being even as some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. What I want you to take from that, although there's so much richness in what Paul had just shared with the people of Athens, but what I want you to take from that is I want you to look at verse 26. From one man he has made every nationality to live over the whole earth and has determined their appointed times and the boundaries where they live. This is the uh, CSB version. You may have a different version. I think in uh, ESV, the ESV translated as, uh, he made uh, from one man every nation of mankind to live on the whole face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. Uh, basically, the, the cliff notes of that is, uh, where you were born is not an accident, and when you were born is not an accident. In fact, God has predetermined the time that you were born and the time when you were born, because that is the optimum time by which God will bring you through this life so that you may reach for him, so that you may seek for him with all your being. And so God has the ability, even to the even down to the degree of when we are born and where we are born, to arrange things in our lives in such a way that whatever comes through or comes to us is only, only coming to us for the purpose of turning our hearts to Him. So if we are born in Texas, 
it's not by accident. If we're born during this time, it's not by accident. I'm reminded of what of what was said to um, Hadassah, or otherwise known as Esther. Uh, maybe she had come into the kingdom for such a time as this. You are in this time for God's purpose, and you are in this time so that God can reach you. You are in this time so that you will seek after him with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. There is no accident. There's nothing accidental. It is purposeful. God has apportioned every one of us to be born when we're born and where we're born. Why? So that we may seek him. Isn't that amazing? That before we even are, before we even take a breath, God knows us so well. He knows us so well. He knows what conditions we need to live under the optimal conditions so that we would seek his face. That's how much he loves you. That's how much he understands you. And so as we come back to Hebrews chapter 12, as we think about the fact that trials will come, these trials are not things that are happening out of the blue. They're not things that are coming from just out of nowhere. God is not sitting on his throne unprepared. Uh, God is not looking down at us as we're going through trials saying, oh my goodness, I never expected that to happen. Rather, God has commissioned every single trial that we go through for the purpose of our holiness so that we could be more like him. But he doesn't just leave us out there. You know, we think about Job, right? He's like the iconic representation of suffering under trials. This man had no idea the conversation that was happening in heaven. Remember that? You go back to the beginning of Job and we find that there's a discussion between uh, the accuser, Satan, and, and God. And, and God is saying, have you considered my servant Job? And, and, and Satan says, well, no. He, of course he worships you. Of course he praises you because you've placed a hedge of protection around him. And, and God says, okay, well, I'm going to lower that hedge. Do not take his life. But you may take other things around him. And here is Job losing his children, losing his, his wealth, losing his credibility among his friends. And having no idea that this conversation took place in heaven. And so what do we take from that? What we need to take from that is that no matter what we're going through in life, it is not something that has blindsided our father. Maybe it's blindsided us. Maybe we're going through trials and we're ignorant of the, uh, of the origin of that trial. But God is in complete control. He is sovereign. And if we are his child, if we're his Unlike the enemy, whose purpose for trials for our lives is to kill, still kill and destroy, his purpose is for the redemption of our souls and the holiness of who we are. So trials will come. And not only are trials coming, and not only is God aware of it, but God will give us a warning. God will prepare us. God will give us everything we need. In John chapter 16, what does Jesus say to his apostles? He says, these things I said to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So we have the warning of Jesus that we are not to go through life without trials. We are not to go through life without difficulties. Difficulties will come. But it's okay. It's okay. We need to have, uh, there's, there's a perspective we need to have. We need to have a perspective that is focused on God because our response to trials is dependent upon our perspective and our perspective is dependent upon where our eyes are gazing. 
So if our eyes are gazing upon this life and the temporal aspect of this life, this life is all that there is, this, this physicality is all that there is, uh, what's, what I'm going to have for dinner tomorrow or tonight, what I'm going to have for breakfast tomorrow, what I'm going to do tomorrow, eat, drink, you know, because tomorrow I die. You know, if I'm just focused on the here and now, if I'm just focused on this present life, if I'm just focused on everything around me that's temporal in nature, then when the trial comes my way, I'm not going to be able to deal with it. But if my focus and my attention is on the fact that God is eternal and that he has called me to a world that I haven't seen yet, the world that is to come, that that there is an existence that is far greater in reality than than this, that what God has in store for us is eternal and that this life is a test. This life really comes to this. It's our final exam. It's the studying and it's the testing and it's the proving of our character of who we really are because God has a work. God has a purpose for us in his world to come. So trials are going to come in this world. And we've been talking about this over and over again. We talked about the Feast of Tabernacles, right? Tabernacles were a temporary dwelling abode. The idea is that it's temporary. We looked at this in the, in the chapter 11. We talked about how these, these, these men and women of God, they did not focus and dwell upon the fact that this life was permanent. Rather, Their eyes were looking to a building not made with hands. They understood something that this tent is fading away, that this tent is breaking down. And when we understand our our trials, our our health issues, whatever, those things should point us to the fact that, oh, you know what? This body is not made to live forever. But the Lord Jesus says he is going to prepare a place for me. He is preparing a body for me. He's preparing an existence for me that is forever. And so as I go through life here, you know what? I don't have to stress. I still do, but I don't have to. I don't have to get bent out of shape. I still do, but I don't have to. Because I understand that the Lord has brought me to this world to test me, to prove me, to shape me, to create in me a character that is like his sons for the world to come. <clears throat> so we're told to take heart. Jesus says, I have overcome the world. And so our response to trials, again, we said is dependent upon our perspective. Where am I looking? And our perspective is dependent upon where I'm gazing. If I'm looking unto Jesus, as was said earlier, if my eyes are on him, then as I go through this life, I will have the correct perspective of whatever comes. But what happens if my eyes are not on Jesus? That's the question that begs. We have to beg that question. John 16, verse 1, earlier in the chapter, Jesus said, I've said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. In verse 6, he says, but because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. So two things. If our eyes are not on Jesus, we are in danger of falling away. If our eyes are not on Jesus, we are in danger of allowing sorrow to overwhelm us. 
And when we think about falling away, let's go back to uh, this verse here, verse 3. He says, um, do not be wearied. We're, we're, consider him who endure contradictions, lest you be wearied and faint in your minds. What is that word wearied? Where is it word? What, what does he mean? Of course, it means to tire, to faint, to be sick. What does it mean to faint? It means to dissolve or to loose. Uh, to dissolve, to, to take something that was put together or to, or to take something that was connected and then to loose that connection. And so, uh, when we look at what Jesus says in John 16, 1 and John 16, 16, 1 verse 1 and John 16, uh, verse 6, he says, I'm saying this to you so you don't fall away. I'm saying this to you so sorrow doesn't fill your heart. You see, we can be overwhelmed with sorrow when we are enduring trials, when trials are happening. We can even get to the point where we fall away from our faith. We fall away from believing what God said. We start asking things like, well, God, if you really are God, why did you allow, why do you allow cancer, Lord? Why do you allow death? Why do you allow all these things to happen if you really are who you say you are? And so how easily we can find ourselves shrinking back, saying, you know what, I can't believe uh, in a God who does this. I, I can't believe in a God who allows this. I can't believe, Lord, that you would bring this into my life. <coughs> and so if our eyes are not on him, if our eyes are not focused on the fact that he is good, that he is a father, that he loves us, then when these things happen to us, we will be wearied. We will faint. And not only in our minds, but really that word minds there is indicative of our souls, our psyche. That's the Greek word. It's our the seat of our feelings, our desires, our affections. It's who we are beyond what you see on the external. It's the person in nature. It's what drives us. It's our heart. It's our soul. It's everything that helps us make decisions in life. And so we are in danger of falling away. We are in danger of being wearied if we don't keep our eyes on him. But it also says that we are to consider. It says we are to consider him. And what are we, what are we considering? We're considering him who endured such contradiction of sinners. And what does it mean by that? What it means is, obviously, we need to ponder over. We need to estimate, contemplate who he is. And it really speaks of of a examination by comparison. It's like if you were to go to the store and you were to get a um, cantaloupe and maybe a cantaloupe is about this big and you get another cantaloupe and it's this big and, and you're trying to figure out what, what you wanna get. And so you weigh one and you see how much it weighs and that determines, that determines how much you're gonna cost. It's gonna cost you and you weigh the other. And so you're trying to do a comparison to estimate the cost. And so really what the author of Hebrews is saying is that we need to weigh and consider ourselves against who? Who's the standard? The standard is Jesus. When we are going through trials, we are to always come back and weigh those trials. We are to consider those trials against the standard of the Lord. Actually, that word uh, in the Greek is uh, where we get the word analog, also the word analogy. And so helping us understand we are comparing these things. And so sometimes our problem is, uh, again, with our perspective, when we go through trials, we don't consider the things that Jesus suffered. We don't consider what he went through. We don't consider what he understood, undertook and what he overcame for us. 
Rather, our focus is purely on ourselves. And so we see no one else, we hear no one else, we think of no one else but ourselves. We become narrowly focused, narrow-minded. Uh, in fact, we have tunnel vision and we can't even per- perceive or think of anyone else in that moment in our pain except ourselves. But what the Word of God is telling us is that if we are to endure these trials, the best way to endure is by stepping outside of ourselves and saying, you know what? This is bad. I'm going through this. But what did Jesus go through? I'm enduring this. This is really tough. But what did my Lord, what did my Savior go through? How did he overcome this? And so as we weigh these things, it helps us understand something. Because in verse 4, what does it say? You have not resisted unto blood, striving against sin. And if we really think about that, have we done that? Especially in this country, in America, have we truly resisted unto blood as we strive against sin? I'm not talking about um, I'm not talking about someone else's sin. I'm talking about our own sin. That's what this is about. This is about our sin. This is about our trials. Have we truly resisted unto blood? Have we shed our blood? Have we uh, resisted so um, vehemently that we are literally sweating droplets of blood as Jesus did as he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane? Is that what we're going through? Have we resisted to the fact that our hands are pierced? Have we resisted to the fact that our, our feet are pierced? That we're scourged? That a crown of thorns is placed on our head? that our clothes are stripped away, that all of our friends abandon us, that our Father in heaven turns his eyes away from us, that we're raised up on a cross, a cursed tree, is that the extent to which we have resisted? And of course, the answer is no. There is only one person, by the way, who shed his blood for our sins. There is only one person, by the way, to whom we owe all of our loyalty and fealty to. You don't owe that to me. I'm just a man. I'm a sinner saved by grace. I'm just, God has just given me a gift and I'm using that gift. But if ever, if anyone ever comes into our lives and say, hey, look, you are to give your loyalty to that person. You know what? Run away from that person. Because only Jesus is worthy of our undying loyalty. Because he is the only one who shed his blood for our sins. Period. So when we talk about resisting, when we're talking about living, when we're talking about following after the Lord, he is our example. Paul said, follow me as I follow Jesus, right? The implication is, as long as I am following Jesus Christ, I am a good example to follow. But the moment I start deviating from what the Lord has said, the moment the agenda becomes about me and not about him, you need to find someone else. And so we have to consider him. We have to take note of who he is. He is the one who endured the scorn. He's the one who endured the rejection. He's the one that endured the abuse of sinners. The Romans who mocked him, said horrible things about him, who, who uh, beat him. Uh, these people, the Jews, uh, men and women, his brothers and sisters, who cried out for a thief and a murderer to be released and spared. All right? We all have a share in the fact that Jesus died. It's not one group or the other. He died for the world. 
because the world was sinful. The world was in need of a savior. So as we talk about striving against sin, as we talk about working daily and and trying to, to do what is right, I can't help but think about Paul. Paul talks about this in Romans chapter seven. In verse 14, he says, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am fleshly. I am sold into bondage to sin. For I do not understand what I'm doing. For I am not practicing what I want to do, but I do the very thing that I hate. Can we, can we relate to that? I can relate to that, right? I know what's right. I know what I want to do. I'm saved. I'm redeemed. I bought uh, blood purchased by, by Jesus, but yet I still find myself doing the things I don't want to do. And so Paul is like, look, this, this is the law. The, the law is spiritual, but I am in my flesh. Remember, I've said this a couple of times. My biggest enemy, Aaron Green, is a person I see in a mirror. That is a man I have to contend with every single day. That man, he is resurrected every single day. All right. And I have to pull out the nails. If I don't do it early in the morning, I got to nail him back to that cross. I got to crucify my flesh. If I don't crucify my flesh, guess what? My wife will know. My kids will know. My coworkers will know. And here's the thing, guys. We don't belong to ourselves anymore. We don't have the excuse to say, well, that's just who I am. That's just my personality. No, we are called to live with joy. We are called to live as if we are the representatives of Christ on this earth. We are called to let our light shine, period. We are called to love Period. It is a commandment of the Lord. And if there's anything, as we read last week, if there's any weight, if there's any sin that is keeping you from doing what God has called you to do, which is to love him and love others, it needs to be dealt with. It needs to be put away. It needs to be crucified. And Aaron Green, he is the primary obstacle that prevents me from loving people the way God has called me to. And so I have to put them to death every single day. Paul relates to this. He says in verse 16, however I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law. The law is good. But now no longer am I the one doing it, but sin that dwells in me. Okay, as long as we're still on this earth, guess what? Sin dwells in us, right? You know what's going to happen? You know what will happen when sin no longer dwells in us? We won't be here. We'll be glorified. We'll be with Jesus. And this sin, this will, will be transformed. It'll be removed from us. And I don't, I don't know how he's going to do it, but I can't wait for him to do it. It's going to be awesome. <clears throat> for I know that the good does not dwell in me. That is in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. Verse 19, for the good that I want, I do not do but I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I do the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin that dwells in me. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. It's present in me, the person I want to do good things, but it's present in me. Verse 22, for I joyfully agree with the law of God in the inner person, but I see a different law in the parts of my body 
Waging war against the law of my mind, my body is at war. My flesh is at war. The sin nature is opposing me and making me, Paul says, a prisoner of the law of sin, the law which is in my body's parts. And here's that iconic verse, verse 24. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Verse 25, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other hand, my flesh with the law of sin. Paul understood exactly what we are going through because Paul went through it himself. Paul understood this law of sin, this law of the flesh that tries to overrule us every single day, that tries to keep us from living and being the light that Jesus called us to be, that tries to keep us from being salt on this world. But Paul understood, he understood that and he gives us encouragement and says, hey, you know what? We can still strive. We can still strive against it. We understand that there's a law trying to rule against us, but we are celebrating the fact that the spirit of God is in us and he, through Christ, has freed us from this body of death. We've not yet resisted unto blood. <clears throat> We've not yet resisted unto blood. Paul is illustrating that. But we, knew, we also need to take note of the fact that Jesus, Jesus did resist, he did conquer, he did overcome. In fact, so much so that, what did Pilate say about Jesus? Do you guys remember what Pilate said about Jesus? In John chapter 19, verse 4, Pilate went back. He went back to the Pharisees. He went back to the Jews. He went back to the priests. And he said unto them, Behold, I bring him forth to you that you may know that I find no fault in him. There was no fault found in Jesus. There was no sin found in him. He is our example. So that takes us to our next section. Our Father, he loves us. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5 through 11. Our Father, he loves us. All right. And you have forgotten, verse 5, the exhortation which speaks unto you as unto children. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when you are rebuked of him. The writer of Hebrews is quoting directly from Psalm, uh, Proverbs chapter 3, verse 11 through 12, which says, My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor detest his correction. And it goes on to say, For whom the, whom the Lord loves, he corrects, just as a father, the son in whom he delights. Verse 6 goes on to say, um, verse 6 of Hebrews chapter 12, For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. So we have this principle now that the author is illustrating. He says, look, have you forgotten? Have you forgotten that this was said? This is not a new thing. This is something that was said of old. Have you forgotten what he said? Have you forgotten the exhortation? which speaks to you as unto children. That's a novel thought, that in the Old Testament, uh, that, that God is addressing people and he's calling them children because, you know, they weren't allowed to really call him father because it spoke of the fact that they were implying that they were a son of God or that they were God themselves. But we see back here, God is saying, look, you are my children, all right? And don't despise, don't despise the chastening of the Lord. Why does the Lord chasten? Why does the Lord discipline? Why does the Lord allow trials to come into our lives? Well, it's a simple, it's a simple answer because he loves us. He loves us. We're driving down the road, we get a flat tire. Oh Lord, hey, I love you. Really? All right, we got a stomach infection, you know, and uh, 
ungodly things are coming out of our bodies. We're like, really, Lord? Yeah, I love you. We're not doing well or struggling in school. Really, Lord? Yeah, I love you. God loves us. He allows all these things to happen because he loves us. Now, sometimes we are going through trials because, like Job, there's some things happening that we don't see. There's some testing that God is bringing about. And we don't understand what's happening. Uh, and, and so it can feel a little unfair. But then other times, there are times where we're going through trials and it's because, oh, we deserve it and we need it. Right? Uh, I don't know if anyone used to get spankings as a kid. I used to get a lot of them. Right? And uh, I remember one time in the third grade, this is when child abuse was kind of happening a lot and stuff like that. And then this one kid was, um, his father had abused him and uh, like, you know, just really abused him pretty bad. And I'm this, you know, precocious little kid in the third, you know, third grade. And they're talking to the teachers up there talking about like, you know, if this happens to you, if you're getting spankings, blah, blah, blah. If you're like, you know, you're being abused by your parents. This is a time for you to come up and say something. I'm like, well, I get spankings. I get whoopings. That must qualify as child abuse. So I raised my hand. I was like, I'm getting, yes, I am being abused, sir. I am. And my teacher, Mr. Smith, said, Aaron, put your hand back down. You deserve every whooping you get. <laughs> oh, my little world was crushed, you know? <laughs> so no, I was not abused. Mom, if you're watching, you never abused me. I deserved it all. Sometimes, though, as believers, God brings discipline to us because we need it. If there's a sin that we're holding on to, there's something that's keeping us from being what he's called us to be, he will allow it. And he doesn't allow it because he hates us. He doesn't allow it because he's disgusted with us or he's angry with us. He allows it because he loves us. I don't know how many more times I can say that. He loves us. It doesn't feel like he loves us. We're going to see that later on in this section. But he loves us. And you have to believe that. Because if you don't believe it, you're going to be back in verse 3. Where you are wearied. Where you are falling away. Almost to the point where Jesus is saying, like, look, I don't want you to fall away. I don't want you to walk away from your faith. I, I don't want you to become tired. I don't want you to become sorrowful. If we forget that God loves us and every child trial he takes us through is his loving hand on us, we will forget and the enemy will come in, and the enemy's very good. He's been doing this for thousands of years. He will come in and say, see, God doesn't love you. See, why did he allow that to happen? Oh, you must not be favored anymore. You must not be a child of God. You know, the enemy's very good at whispering these things. And, and by the way, something the Lord taught me as an, as an early believer, because I, I wrestle with thoughts all the time. When you want to figure out if a thought is from the Lord or if it's not from the Lord, what you have to do is you have to take that thought and say, what's the natural conclusion? Take this thought to its end. Does this thought bring you closer to Jesus or does it take you further away? Think about that. You're driving on a freeway. Someone cuts you off and you're like, I want to give that guy a piece of my mind. Ask yourself, does this take me further away from Jesus or does it take me closer to Jesus? Does yelling at that driver, does that bring me closer into a relationship with the Lord or does it take me further away? When Facebook, oh goodness, Facebook, when things are happening on Facebook 
And here you are, mm, 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 right here. I'm about to, I'm about to straighten this person out right now. Is that taking you closer to the Lord, or is that taking you further away? Because I guarantee you, if it's taking you away from the Lord, chances are it's probably not a thought that's from the Lord. It's probably not something you should dwell upon. Remember what Paul said in Philippians. The things which are lovely, the things which are peaceful, the things which are of good report, these are the things that we are supposed to meditate on. If these things are not lovely, if these things are not of a good report, if these things do not bring glory to God, we should not meditate on these things. So as we are thinking about this again, the Lord, if he loves you, he is going to chasten you and he is going to scourge you. Notice it says in verse six, every son, and that's not just sons, but you know, we know that's a general universal um, application. Every child that he receives. So first thing to take from this is number one, if you have a relationship with God, you are received as a child. You have been brought into the kingdom. You are now a son and daughter of the living king, period. Number one, that's a great place to be. Number one, because think about where you would be if you were not a child of God. Right? You're driving down the street and or you turn on the news and you see some kid and they're acting up and they're being bad. They're being monsters. I'm like, man, man, glad that's not my kid. I couldn't have that person in my house. Good grief, right? And that's probably your thought, and that's that's as far as it goes. You're not like actually getting on the phone. It's like, yeah, I just saw in a report that there was this child. He was acting up. I'm really concerned. I'd like to get his phone number. Maybe I can have him stay with me. No, none of us do that, right? We're just like, glad that's not my child. But when it's your own kid, you're like, uh-huh, no. No, you're not going to behave that way, Right? I remember as a kid, I, I literally thought that I would die if I said certain things to my mom. I, I thought that death was looming for me if I was disrespectful. And that was a good place for me to be, honestly. God looks at us and he says, you are my son. You are my daughter. I will chasten you. I will scourge you. Now, let's think about this. What, is this, what does it mean to be chastened? Well, it sounds really, really harsh because we think of chastening, we think of what happened to our Lord. We think of scourging, we think of whips, we think of uh, all this pain, but really it means to discipline. And it speaks of how parents are to train their children. It, It speaks of causing them to learn. We are putting them in situations where they will learn it's like if you're playing sports or if you're doing a new activity or or new job, it's like on-the-job training. You are uh, not necessarily, think about it, if you, were, if you decided that you wanted to be a, a medical doctor, uh, they, you just don't show up out of high school and they give you this, confer upon you the responsibilities of a doctor, right? You have to go to school, you have to learn, and then once you're done with medical school, you have to go to a residency program where you then learn as more, and then once you're done with residency, you have to go through a fellowship or an internship where you are being poured into. So until you are then conferred the responsibilities of looking after patients. So God is doing the same thing with us. He is taking us through school. He is molding us. He is molding and shaping our character. And he's using situations in life that help us understand it. You know, as a parent, one of the best things that can teach you how to become a more patient person are children. You know, you pray that prayer, God, help me to be more patient. Okay, here you go. Here's a 10-year-old. 
Here's an eight-year-old. Here's a six-year-old. Here's a three-year-old who climbs into your bed in the middle of the night, right? God is like, I'm going to teach you how to be patient, right? Or maybe it's not kids. Maybe it's just a job. You are dealing with a coworker that is, oh my goodness, they are always asking you questions. So, hey, you know, can you tell me this? Can you show me this? I really don't understand how to do this, or blah, 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 blah. And you're like trying to get your work done, and it's like this person is just constantly badgering you. And you're like, I can't do anything with this person here. Or maybe it's a boss, or maybe it's a neighbor that's always parking their car in front of your house, even though they have plenty of parking spots in their own home. I'm not talking about myself or anybody I know anyway, whatever. (laughs) So God will teach you these things. He will allow these trials in your life. And again, this is why it's so important that we keep our eyes on Jesus. If our eyes are not on Jesus, we're just going to look at these situations and we're going to like, oh, this is annoying. This is really annoying. All right, this child is annoying. This coworker is annoying. This neighbor is annoying. And you know what we're going to you know what we're not going to see? We're not going to see that that child is a blessing from the Lord and a gift. And that child God is using to help us refine our character. We're not going to see that that coworker is made in the image of God and needs to see Jesus in our lives. We're not going to understand that our that our neighbor is not saved and needs to know the grace of God. And so our eyes need to be on him. If our eyes are on him, our perspective is correct because God is looking down and says, yes, good, I'm glad you see it. You see the blessings. You see what this, you see this is for what it actually is. It's an opportunity for your growth. It's an opportunity for us to draw closer to him. That word scourge means, of course, to flog, uh, to plague, a calamity, a misfortune. But we have to understand that it is specifically sent by the Lord. And, and sometimes these, these scourgings are there as a form of punishment or discipline. So there will be times where God does discipline us. There will be times where God does punish us. I remember there have been times where um, I've had unrepentant sin in my life and, you know, everything I tried to do, nothing went well that day, right? Or I don't read the word of God that morning and I'm just like, everything's going wrong. I can't communicate with my wife. I can't communicate with people at work. I can't communicate with anybody, right? Everything's just going bad. And finally, I get to the point like, oh, okay, Lord, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You're right. I'm wrong. I see what you're doing. I see you're trying to get my attention. Do you understand God loves you? Do you understand that if you have a sin that's in your life and you're sweeping it away and you're sweeping it away, you're trying to hide it, you're trying to uh, put it out or put it in a rug or something like that, and you, you just keep doing that, God's not satisfied with that because he wants to expose it, not because he's trying to embarrass you, not because he hates you, but because he loves you and he's called you to a higher purpose. He's got a plan for your life. He's got things that he wants to accomplish in you. So he's not just going to let you get away with the sin over and over again. He's going to give you chance after chance after chance to repent, to come clean with it, to face it until finally, if you keep resisting, you're going to be like Pharaoh. Remember what the Bible says about Pharaoh? Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart. And then finally we read that dreadful verse, God hardened his heart. And so that's the path we're on. If we keep resisting God's chastisement, if we keep resisting the scourging that he brings into our lives, you know what? A lot of us think we're Davids, 
But the reality is a lot of us are Saul's. David went around thinking, oh, woe is me, woe is me. David's trying to usurp my, my kingdom. He's trying to take my throne away from me. He's trying to take what I have. And so he defends himself, not by going to the Lord, not by letting God fight his battles, but he throws spears at the Lord's anointed. And a lot of us falsely think that we are David's, when the reality is we're Saul's. We're throwing spears at people. We're making accusations. The things we're accusing them of, we are doing ourselves. The things that we are, are, are saying we cannot stand about them, those are the misgivings and, and the areas in our life that God is trying to get a hold of. And so we have to be careful. We have to focus on Jesus, be sensitive to Jesus, and allow the Lord to discipline us. Because, what did I say before? How does he feel about us? He loves us. And by the way, that, that love, that word, we know this word in Greek, right? Anybody want to take a guess? What is that word in Greek? You know what agape is? It is unconditional. It's unconditional love. It's a love that goes beyond. It's a love that's willing to cross the greatest chasm in order to retrieve us, in order to bring us home. It's a love that reaches out with arms wide open and says, I am looking for you to return. It's a love that says, I don't care what it takes. I'm going to embarrass myself. I'm going to reach down. I'm going to be there for you because I love you so much. That is a goppy love. That is a love that says, look, I'm not giving up on you. You are the one out of the 99 that's gone astray, and I'm going to go after you. That's a goppy love. So it takes us to verse 7 and 8. Uh, verse 7, 8, 9, and 10, sorry. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the father doesn't chasten? But if you be without chastisement, whereof are all partakers, then you are bastards and not sons. Furthermore, we have had fathers in our flesh who corrected us and we gave them reverence. Shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the father of spirits and live? For they verily for a few days chasten us after their own pleasure, but he for our profit, that we might be partakers of his holiness. So we're seeing this picture now of a comparison. Again, we were to compare ourselves to Jesus earlier, right? We're seeing this theme, weighing, weighing the things that we go through, weighing that with what Jesus went through. And now God, or God is uh, inspiring this, this person to, whoever wrote Hebrews, to, to allow us to say, hey, we need to weigh uh, the chastisement of the Lord with the chastisement of our earthly parents. And I, and I grant, granted, I know that every one of us come from different backgrounds. Some of us had mothers and fathers in our lives. Some of us just had mothers, uh, grandmothers, uh, grandfathers. Uh, some of us had no parents, maybe. Uh, but there were people who were in our lives that served as a role of, of discipline. Maybe it was good, maybe it was bad. But he's saying, look, our earthly parents or whoever had that responsibility in our lives, they disciplined us to mold us and conform us according to whose standards? Their standards. We were induced to conform to their requirements. You know, at our house, we... We, we don't, well, okay, I would, might, would not like for our kids to have candy, but whatever. Um, but you, so you may have examples like no candy, right? You may have examples like, oh, um, well, Lindsay would like for the kids to go to bed by 8 o'clock. I'm a bit softer on that, um, to, to which I apologize. But, you know, you may say, okay, they're going to go to bed by 8 o'clock. And, you know, and if you ask yourselves, why? 
why do you say no candy? You know, I might say, well, because, you know, that way they don't lose their teeth. Their teeth don't fall out, right? Or Lindsay might say, well, why do you want them to go to bed by 8? Well, that way they get enough sleep and rest. But the reality is, if you really think about it, it's kind of arbitrary. It's based upon what we think as parents is best for our kids. Now, that's, that's one thing. It's one thing to have a parent that actually thinks that they are doing what's best for a child. Then you have parents or people in that role who don't care about what's best for that kid. They've set up these rules because these rules is like, look, you cross this line, now you're starting to annoy me. You cross this line, now you're starting to get on my last nerve, as I heard many times as a kid coming up. You cross this line, now you're going to put me in a position where I'm going to uh, demonstrate my anger and my wrath. And we've known people like that, right? We've known people who really don't seem to care about that child, but rather they care about that child not infringing upon their personal liberties. And so we're, we're weighing, God is giving us his example. We have earthly parents of whom the spectrum of, in terms of their motivations for why they discipline children is across the board. You have people who genuinely care about their children or care about that child and are trying to do what they think is best for that child versus people who are all the way on the other end who don't care about that child at all. But that child is smaller than them, they're weaker than them, and therefore you will do what I tell you to do, otherwise I will hurt you. And some of us maybe have grown up in situations like that. And you know what? If that was your childhood, I want you to know, I want you to take comfort in these passages. Because what God is showing us is that even if we didn't have a father or a mother who loved us the way we deserved, we've always been loved by our Heavenly Father. We've always, always, always been the apple of His eye. And He looks upon you and he seeks you, and he sings over you, and he loves you, and he cares for you, and you can take it to the bank that everything that happens in your life is because it's for your good, and because he loves you. As we look at this passage, it says that, when we look at the word, it says, uh, they, they disciplined us according to their pleasure. At verse 10, they chastened us after their own pleasure. That word is dakeo. Now, I had to make sure I understood how to pronounce that word, dakeo, because the English transliteration is D-O-K-E-O, right? Dukeo, right? So I had to be careful that, you know, okay, how do I pronounce this word? Dakeo, not dukeo, okay. So there's only a few teenagers in here, so. But really what it means is to have an opinion, to think, to suppose. It, it basically implies that person is making a judgment based upon what they think is best. And again, that could be based upon what actually is best for that child, or it could be based upon what they think is best for themselves, to please themselves. But when we think about God's chastisement, it's not based upon opinion. You know, God's not up there reading Dr. Spock. So, okay, how do I discipline these earthly kids? Okay, I got kids now. How do I do this? Okay, Pat, chapter five. All right, all right. No, God's not looking at these resources. God is disciplining us based upon love. It's not based upon opinion. It's not based upon whim. It's not based upon something that's unfair. More importantly, it's not based upon a, a, a lack of mercy. 
we obeyed our earthly parents or these people that had these roles of authority over us. We obeyed them out of respect, maybe, and fear, definitely. In some cases, definitely love. We loved our parents. If some of us had great parental relationships, some of us didn't. But with the Lord, we can take heart that we can obey him out of always out of love. Why? Because the Lord is merciful. The Lord is kind. The Lord is loving, right? It's who he is. He is a good father. We sing that song, right? It's who he is. That is his nature. That is a bedrock. It will never change. In fact, we see examples of this. Think about David in 2 Samuel verse 24, or chapter 24, verse 14. David has sinned. He has numbered the people of Israel. God has given him a choice. He's got three choices for his punishment. And David says in verse 14, Then David said to Gad, the prophet, who told him and informed him of the fact he had sinned against God, he said, I am in, a, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great. But let me not fall into the hand of man. And so if we are finding ourselves in a situation where God is like, look, I got to discipline you, I got to chastise you. You know what? Praise the Lord. It is better to fall into the hand of God than the hand of men. If we are his and he is ours, then we have this assurance that his mercy is great. Remember in Lamentations it says his mercy is great, right? It's renewed every single day. You know, God doesn't just have like a small little pool. You know, think about it as parents, you know. We have sometimes just small little amount of patience sometimes. And then towards the end of the day, you know, it's like decreasing, 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 decreasing. At the end of the day, that's it. It's, I got no more patience. I got nothing else for you, child. All right. You best go find the nearest safe room because if you keep with this, you, your life is going to be in jeopardy. Right. Sometimes we are, we're like that with each other or we're like that with our friends or we're like that with our neighbors or coworkers. But, you know, God's mercy never runs out, never runs out. And in fact, uh, Jeremiah in Lamentation says his mercy is new every day, every day. All right. So it's not the same old mercy. It's new mercy. God is dealing with with us every single day in a fresh way, a fresh and loving way. Because he knows the challenges that we have this day. And so he gives and apportions to us a mercy that is specifically tailored to allow us to make it through that day. That's so beautiful. He thinks about us. He knows us. He seeks us. He loves us. And what's his goal? What is God trying to accomplish in chastising us? What is he trying to accomplish in scourging us? Simply put, our holiness. He's seeking to make us holy. That word holy, we also have another word for it. We call it sanctification. It means to be set apart. It, it, is, it means to say, hey, you know what? This which is holy is separate from that which is not. All right? We talked about um, leaven. We talked about leaven and having bread that had leaven in it. Leaven represents sin, and you don't use leavened bread in the Holy of Holies because it represents sin being in the presence of God. But we also have uh, different means of sanctifying, right? Uh, different things, you know, many different times. Like, you know, I may go to the store and I may buy, buy a bag of chips. I may buy a bag of Fritos. But then I know I have to buy a bag of Fritos for everybody else. So I may buy this random brand that I don't like for the family and I may buy myself these special bags, this special bag of Fritos. And you know what these are? These are holy. 
These are set apart. These are not profane like these for the common people. These are set apart for me and they will be in my office with me and they will dwell with me in my presence. In the book of Leviticus, we see that God calls his people to be holy five times. Leviticus, I won't read them all, but Leviticus chapter 11, Leviticus chapter 19, Leviticus chapter 20. Let me just read chapter 11, verse 44. For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. Set yourself apart and be holy. We think of holiness and we think of like, oh, that person's really holy, blah, 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 blah. They're perfect. No, that's not what it means. It means to be different. It means to be peculiar. It means to be strange. Peter says that you are a peculiar people. You are a royal priesthood. You are different from the world. And so the world has a way of thinking. The world has a way of responding. You are not to be that way. In fact, the reason you're not to be that way is because God who has consecrated you is holy. And therefore, you also should be holy. In fact, Peter sums it up in chapter 1, verse 15 through 16. But like the Holy One who called you, notice you are called, you have been called out of this world. Be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So this idea of holiness uh, in Greek is called hagiots, and in Hebrew it's called kadosh. It means free from defilement, free from sin, free from anything profane, both physically and morally. Uh, people are in such a state. Note this, get this, the reason that they are in such a state of being set apart is not because of their personal holiness or self-righteousness. It is because God's grace has set them apart. He is holy, therefore you are to be holy. Why? You are his child. You know, growing up, there were things that I couldn't do. Why? Because we don't do those things in our house. And I would say, but the neighbors do. I was like, well, that's good for them. But in this house, we don't do those things. And that's the same thing with the Lord. We may say, Lord, look at the world. They're, they're committing adultery or they're cheating on their taxes or they're lying and they're stealing. And God says, that, that's fine for them and I'm going to deal with them. But you live in my house and you don't do those things here in this house. Joshua said, as for me and my house, we will serve who? The world? Baal? Molech? No. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And so it's understanding fundamentally who you are, because you need to get this. You need to understand who you are. You are a son and daughter of the living king. He has called you by name and he has given you his name. So therefore, you are not just, you know, Aaron Green, blah, blah, blah of the world. No, I am a child of God and his name is upon me. And so therefore, if his name is upon me, wherever I go into this world, I'm going out as a son of God. I'm representing him. Oh, she's so cute. And so therefore, I need to behave as his son. I need to behave as his son. 
So God has attributed holiness to us and we need to live in that way that verifies God's declaration on us that we are set apart from the world and we are set apart unto him. I love the fact that he says we are no longer bastards. It means of uncertain affinity, illegitimate. We are no longer illegitimate. We belong to him. He is our father and he belongs to us. And he loves us. Let's revisit verse 7 real quick. I know we're running short on time, but let's revisit verse 7. Verse 7 says, If you endure chastening, God deals with you as sons. For what son is he whom the Father chastens not? Uh, I want you to understand something. In Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 31, God speaks through Moses and to the people. He says, In the wilderness where you have seen how the Lord carried you as a man carries his son all the way that you went until you came to this place. It's a beautiful picture. It's a beautiful picture of God saying, look, I have scooped you up and I have carried you from Egypt to this land of promise. And it's symbolic of the life that we live on this earth. You know, um, you guys have, I'm sure you've heard that poem about footsteps in the sand, right? You know, that that beautiful moment where the, the author realizes that Hey, I thought God abandoned me because I don't, I don't see two footsteps, two sets of prints anymore. And then God says to him, no, son, I, I was carrying you the whole way. And so the, 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 what I'm trying to say is that, look, you know, as we go through these trials, we're not carrying ourselves, but he's carrying us. All right. As we go through this discipline, we have the assurance that he's with us. We have the assurance that he's going to bring us through because he said he will never leave us or forsake us. He said that he loves us. He said that he is with us. He said that we are his children. So therefore, that allows us to endure. We can persevere. We can um, persevere under misfortunes. We can persevere under trials. We can continue. We can patiently uh, go through this life and go through our difficulties. And so finally, that takes us to our last verse for today. Now, no chastening for the present seems to be joyous, but grievous. Therefore, nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. You see, God is developing fruit. He's going to bring fruit in our lives. He's looking for us to, to bring out this fruit so that others may partake of it. Uh, I think about Psalm 34, taste and see that the Lord is good. And so how do people taste and see that the Lord is good? A lot of times they do it by looking at our lives. They look at it, they do it by examining who we are. And so this, what is God trying to bring out? He's trying to bring out joy. When we go through trials, it's not joyous, but we have the reassurance that at some point it's going to turn into joy. He, he's going to take our suffering. He's going to take our brokenness. He's going to take our mourning and he's going to turn it into joy. And so that joy is going to be in him. It's going to be in knowing that we are saved and redeemed by him. And when we think about being grieved, we think about sometimes it, the definition kind of implies suffering loss. There may be things that we have to suffer loss of, maybe earthly possessions or decisions we have to make. And, and it's okay. It's okay. Because the things that we lose in this world prepare us to receive what God has for us in the next world, in the world to come. There is a world to come. There is a, a, a glory that God will reveal. There is something that he is going to bring back. He's going to restore. He's going to bring it back. But notice it says, uh, the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. That word is gymnazo. 
right? And the implication is looking someone training vigorously with their eyes on competing in the Olympic Games. And why do you do that? Why do you train? You're wanting to win a prize. And what is the prize? The prize is Jesus. The prize is his holiness. The prize is God himself. And what was Jesus' prize? We read that in verse 1, right? Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despised and the shame, were his prize. So there are three things I want to leave with you. Three means of cultivating endurance. How do we do this? Number one, brokenness and confession. In Luke chapter 20, verse 18, it says, whoever shall fall upon that stone, the stone being Christ, because previously he just declared that he is the cornerstone in that passage. He says, whoever shall fall on that stone shall be broken. But on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder. There's a lesson here. If we humbly submit ourselves and allow ourselves to be broken, if we fall upon Jesus, it's going to hurt. We're going to go through trials. He's going to remove things out of us. Things that we want to hold on to, sins that we want to hold on to, habits we want to hold on to. There are things he's going to take away. It's like, I don't like that. I'm getting rid of that. And it may be painful. But the alternative is absolutely horrific. Because if he falls on you, you'll be ground to powder. And so for those who don't have a relationship with the Lord, that is the prospect that they're facing. David wrote in Psalm 51, he said, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness. According to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. In order to be broken, you have to acknowledge the areas in which you are falling short of God's glory. Number two, um, ways of cultivating endurance in trials. We need to seek his face. We need to seek his face. Psalm 51 David, again, writing in verse 9 through, 9 through 11, says, uh, Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit away from me. You know what sin tries to do to us? Sin, we talked about this last time. Sin tries to drive us as far away from God as possible. That's our natural inclination is we want to get away from the holiness of God. We want to get away from his presence because we think he wants nothing to do with us anymore. But we have to fight that urge, all right? When you find yourself like, I'm in sin, I've messed up, you've got to fight that urge to flee. you got to fight that urge and say, you know what? What I need to do is get on my face before God. What I need to do is I need to seek his face. I need to repent. I need to cry out to the Lord. That's what we need to do. It's not natural, all right? We don't necessarily want to do that, but that's exactly what we should do. Psalm 63, verse 1. David says, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. The King James Version says, Early will I seek you. And what it's trying to imply is that uh, it's trying to imply a person who is so desperate for God that it doesn't matter what time of the day it is, that they are seeking God as early and are getting up. The first thing they're doing is seeking him and they're earnest about it. They're seeking him with their whole heart. On the flip side, Isaiah chapter 26, verse 9 says, With my soul I have desired thee in the night. Yes, with my spirit within me I will seek you earnestly. For when thy judgments are on the earth, the inhabitants of the world learn righteousness. So David says, look, I'm going to seek you early. Isaiah says, I'm going to seek you in the night. 
In other words, throughout the entire day, we should be seeking the Lord, seeking his face. And then finally, number three, the way that we can cultivate endurance is by trusting his plan. Isaiah chapter 12, verse 2. God indeed, God is indeed my salvation. I will trust and I won't be afraid. Psalm 28, verse 7, the Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusts him. I was helped. My heart rejoiced, and I thank him with my song. Psalm 56, verse 3 through 4, whenever I'm afraid, I put my trust in you, God, whose word I praise. I trust in God. I won't be afraid. What can mere flesh do to me? Romans chapter 8. We know this passage, and um, we hang out at verse 28 a lot. But what I like to do is, with our remaining time, I want us to stand. I want us to stand, and we're going to read this together. We're going to close on this. So we can all stand up. And we're looking at Romans chapter 8. We're going to start at verse 18. So if you have your Bible with you, please open that. Romans chapter 8, verse 18. It says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy, are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray as we ought but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So picking up at verse 31, if you all can read with me, your translations may be different, but that's okay. Let's just read together from verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long, we are regarded as sheep to the slaughter. 
No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Heavenly Father, we come before you and we thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you for your assurance that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. We thank you, O Lord, that we have this assurance that all things work together for those who are called according to his purpose. We thank you for the assurance that, Lord, we will never be separated from your love, that there is nothing that can separate us from your love, that there is nothing that can come between the love of Christ, the love of the Father, and our lives, O God. We thank you, O Lord, for that reassurance. So, Lord, help us to endure trials with patience. Help us to remember that you love us. Help us to be broken, O Lord. Help us, O Lord, to to seek your face and help us, O Lord, in all things to trust your plan. You are good. You are good. You are very good, O Lord. And there is no one like you. Thank you that you are our father. We pray for anyone who had a childhood that was absolutely just not exemplary of the love of God. I pray, Father, that you would just show them and speak to them and comfort them and let them know that you love them more than anyone else could and that you've always been there for them. Lord, help us understand who you are. Help us, Lord God, not to hold on to those things which easily uh, ensnare us or trip us up. Help us not to hold on to those sins, oh God. But Lord, as you're pointing them out, Day by day, moment by moment, I pray that we bring them to you. We would confess these things to you. And as we are going through trials, Lord God, help us to compare our suffering. Though it seems like an affliction, we know it's a light affliction and it's momentary. It's temporary. But Lord, your glory is eternal. And what you have for us, oh God, where you are calling us to, uh, this world to come, the work to come, Lord God, that is glorious and beautiful. Thank you, Lord, that your purpose is to make us holy. You're making us holy, Lord. God. You're, you're just completely changing who we are. And so, Lord, I just want to want to bless this congregation. I pray that you would bless them, that your face would be upon them. Oh, Lord, that you would um, speak to them throughout the day. May the Lord just uh, remind you of his love for you and his uh, great concern over your lives. May you find peace and comfort in knowing that God is completely sovereign and in control. May you rely upon the Lord and may you experience his mercies, which are new every morning. In Jesus' name.